What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of Logos Podcast. I am not Max, actually. I am Joey. This week, we're going to be releasing a talk that I gave at a conference in my hometown. It was a conference for young adult Catholics, and the talk is titled, Lord, Teach Us to Pray, Principles of the Spiritual Life According to the Good Shepherd. So in this talk, what I do is I read the parable of the Good Shepherd from the 10th chapter of John's Gospel, and then I draw from that parable seven principles of the spiritual life that I hope will help you to grow in your relationship with the Lord and to become better at prayer. And then at the conclusion of the talk, I also list a few practical guidelines for for the prayer life. So like I said, I hope this talk is enjoyable. I hope you find it fruitful. I hope you learn something. If Sam were here right now, He would really want me to tell you to smash the subscribe button, so please do that. And if Max were here right now, he would want me to tell you that, as always, God bless. So enjoy the talk, and God bless. My talk today is called Lord Teach Us to Pray, Principles of the Spiritual Life According to the Good Shepherd. They asked me to give a talk on the Good Shepherd and prayer. And so I just wanted to do three things in this talk. First thing I wanted to do was just read the parable of the Good Shepherd, which is found in John's Gospel, and uh, reflect on that a little bit. And then from this parable, I wanted to draw some principles of the spiritual life that we can use. Welcome. Welcome. How are you? Good. Thanks for being here. I'm Joey. Marcus. Yeah, Joey. Good to meet you guys. Marcus, and what's your name? James. James. Awesome. Welcome. I was just uh, telling these everyone that um, my talk's on the Good Shepherd and prayer. So we're going to be talking about some principles of the spiritual life um, that we can kind of draw from this parable of the Good Shepherd. And then after that, I want to give some kind of like practical advice just on prayer life, some tips. Um, and then we'll see if we have time for a question and answer at the end of it, which reminds me I should set my watch to let me know how long I've been talking. Um, so... Yeah, let's go ahead and start by reading The Good Shepherd. My goal for this talk is that by the end of this talk, I would hope that you've kind of just acquired some knowledge and some principles that you can take with you to grow in your life of prayer. Because I think I mentioned in the, my kind of description of this talk that was on the website is that um, there's a really beautiful passage in one of the documents in the Second Vatican Council that says, Christians are made for intimate and unceasing union with God the Father through Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. Intimate and unceasing union with God. That's what we're made for, and that is the only thing that's going to satisfy us. And one of the big parts of that is our prayer life. So um, why don't we start by reading this parable of the Good Shepherd found in John's Gospel. A thief comes only to steal and slaughter and destroy. I came so that they might have life and have it more abundantly. I am the Good Shepherd. A Good Shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. A hired man who is not a shepherd and whose sheep are not his own sees a wolf coming and leaves the sheep and runs away, and the wolf catches and scatters them. This is because he works for pay and has no concern for the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know mine and mine know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I will lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that do not belong to this fold. These also I must lead, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock one shepherd. 
This is why the Father loves me, because I lay down my life in order to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have power to lay it down and power to take it up again. This command I have received from my Father. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can take them out of my hand. So this is a very famous you know, passage from the John's Gospel. And I would submit to you that this relationship between the sheep and the shepherd, this image of the shepherd and the sheep, is kind of like a good paradigm to think about the entire Christian life in, right? Um, it's every, shepherd and sheep are everywhere in the Bible throughout the Old Testament and fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. So like all the Old Testament patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then guys like Moses and David, they were all shepherds. Um, and Jesus is the, the fulfillment of the Old Testament, right? He is the, the word and he is the true good shepherd who came to lay down his life for his sheep. And this is obviously everyone knows Psalm 23, a famous passage from the scriptures. The Lord is my shepherd. There is nothing I shall want. Fresh and green are the pastures where he gives me repose. So the Christian life, which we're all here to grow in, right? We all want to grow in holiness. We all want to be saints. That's what we're created to do. It's about being a sheep in the shepherd, in the, in the flock of this good shepherd, right? That's what it's about. And so I want to talk about some of the principles that we can draw from that scripture that we just read about our spiritual life, particularly about our life of prayer, because prayer is a big deal. Um, one of the most important aspects of this Christian life is prayer. If you're, if you're a Christian and you don't pray, uh, there's something wrong. Now, why do I say that? I say that because Christianity, this, people get confused about this sometimes. Christianity is not fundamentally like a philosophical worldview or it's not a political party, right? That's not what Christianity is. Christianity is fundamentally more than anything else, a relationship with a human being, a relationship with a person, Jesus Christ, right? Jesus Christ, who is the good shepherd. And the most essential part of any relationship is what? Girls probably know this better than guys do. Communication, right? Communication. Um, I think I think that might be why most of my favorite saints are girls. Uh, that's just a hunch that I have, just because they kind of get it. Um, but yeah, communication is key. If you don't have communication, you don't have a relationship. And what is prayer but a loving conversation and relationship with the Lord, with the Good Shepherd. Um, now, we're going to be talking about a specific type of prayer today. There's a lot of forms of prayer in the Christian tradition, but the one I wanted to talk about in particular is typically referred to as mental prayer. Um, sometimes you'll also hear it called meditation or contemplation. These three words are usually signifying the same reality. And a great place to look for a definition of what mental prayer is. It's not very complicated. It sounds kind of technical and confusing, but St. Teresa of Avila, who I'm going to be referencing a lot today, she's one of the doctors of the church, one of the great saints uh, and great mystics in the spiritual tradition of the church. She says this, she says, mental prayer is nothing else than an intimate friendship, a frequent heart-to-heart conversation with him by whom we know ourselves to be loved. So this is prayer, right? This is, it's not that complicated. It's a friendship. It's a loving conversation, heart-to-heart with the one who we know loves us. Um, Now, before we get into the principles of the spiritual life, I do want to just dispel what is hopefully already clear to most of you, but just a common misconception that there, that exists out there about Christianity and holiness and the prayer life in general. There's this common misconception that prayer, that intimacy with the Lord, that holiness, radical following of Jesus Christ is 
only for the select few, right? That it's only for the priests and the nuns and, you know, the bishops and the, the monks, right? Sometimes we get this idea that only those are the people who are supposed to be radically living out the gospel and that the rest of us are kind of just, you know, try to do our best, not kill anyone, and, you know, we'll be, we'll be fine. But this is actually categorically false. I, I almost put a picture of Dwight Schrute on, uh, on the screen. False. This is false. Um, the Second Vatican Council, which met in um, the 1960s, had this huge theme of the universal call to holiness, right? Every single Christian, no matter what their status in life, is called to radical holiness, intimate union with God. Um, this is one of the quotes from Lumen Gentium, which is a document of the Second Vatican Council. It says, The Lord Jesus, the divine teacher and model of all perfection, preached holiness of life to each and every one of his disciples, of every condition. And then it quotes the scriptures, Be you therefore perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. Thus it is evident to everyone that all the faithful of Christ of whatever rank or status are called to the fullness of Christian life and to the perfection of charity. All of you, every single one of you sitting in this room, was created for union with God. And nothing other than that is going to satisfy you. Anything less than that is going to bore you for your entire life. The Catechism has this beautiful quote. It says, The living and true God tirelessly calls each person to that mysterious encounter known as prayer. Not just the monks, not just the nuns, each person, right? I remember when I kind of came to the awareness of the fact that I was being called to radical holiness, for the first time. I mentioned when I was 18 is when I met the Lord in a substantive way and fell in love with him. Um, one of the most important things that I started doing was going to the chapel at my parish before school every day. So I was a senior in high school and I went to public school, but thanks be to God, my parish, my home parish is right across the street from my, from my high school. And so I started waking up early and going to the blessed sacrament chapel at my parish every day for 45 minutes, an hour. And, uh, I had no idea what I was doing when I went in there. Um, a lot of nights, a lot of mornings, I had been up too late the night before watching Netflix. And so I just went in there and fell asleep, um, which uh, all things considered is the best place to sleep, I think. Um, sometimes I would try to read a spiritual book. I would uh, read the daily readings for Mass. I would try to pray a rosary, but that also usually ended in sleep. And um, uh, But I was just there. I was there every day. And... Uh, there was so much peace and it just began to transform me. And that's where I started to offer God my life, which eventually led me to the seminary. So making the jump to go to the seminary and answering God's call in that vocation was obviously a big decision. But the biggest decision was, was the decision to start praying, the decision to start spending time with the Lord every day in prayer. So um, it's just, it's so important. And it's, it's the way that we will understand what it is that we've been created for. Uh, okay, so now let's get into... Um, some of the principles that we can draw from this parable of the Good Shepherd. The first one we can kind of think about by considering the relationship just between a sheep and a shepherd, right? Um, just this image that our Lord is constantly using to communicate to his people. Something very basic about this relationship is that the sheep cannot do anything without the shepherd, right? The sheep is dependent upon the shepherd. The sheep can't get food. The, the sheep can't protect itself without the guidance of the shepherd, right? Um, and also, from what I understand, I'm not a farmer, but this is what I've heard from people who say this, is that sheep are like notoriously stupid animals. <laughs> Tristan knows. It's true. Oh, yeah. So it's funny that our Lord uses this image to refer to us so often. But 
Um, it's because we're completely helpless and dependent upon him, right? It's because uh, not only that, but we're also broken and wounded and stained by original sin. And so the first principle that we can kind of gather from this parable of the Good Shepherd is that the fundamental disposition for prayer is humility. The fundamental disposition for prayer is humility. St. Teresa of Avila, that great saint, she says this. She says the whole edifice of prayer is founded upon humility. That's a, that's a profound quote. and She's a spiritual genius. The whole edifice of prayer is founded upon humility. We know that God has created the world out of nothing and that he sustains it in existence at every moment. Everything we have, our existence, our life, our body, our mind, our soul, our family, our friends, our strengths, our weaknesses, everything we have is a gift from him. Like we can't even take our next breath without him willing it, which is easy to forget because we go through life and we're busy. But that's the profound reality of our existence. St. Paul has this beautiful quote in the letter to the Corinthians. He says, what do you have that you did not receive? Of course, the answer is nothing, right? You don't have anything that was not a gift from the Lord. And Jesus says it pretty bluntly in the Last Supper. He says to his apostles, yeah, without me, you can do nothing. Without me, you can do absolutely nothing. Uh, Man is completely dependent upon God. And this, the recognition of this reality is what humility is, right? So humility is often misunderstood as like some sort of weird self-loathing or self-deprecation, like I need to think little of myself. That's not what humility is. Humility is simply living in the truth of your existence, knowing that without God, you're absolutely nothing, that we can't, that we can't do anything without him willing it, without his support. There's this famous saying, <clears throat> humilitas veritas, right? I say it in Latin because now you guys all think I'm super smart and holy. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, it's a famous saying, humility and truth. Humility is truth, right? Humility is nothing but walking in the truth of our existence, of our dependence upon God. Um, Father Jacques Philippe, who I'm going to be quoting today, he's a great spiritual author, and he says this. He says, humility lies in peaceful acceptance of one's own radical poverty, which leads people to place all their trust in God. Humble people for whom God is everything are happy to accept the fact that they are nothing, right? Now, this definitely goes against the grain of our culture, especially in America, right? Because in America, we value independence, we value freedom, right? And we value pride and success and achievement, right? But these are not really Christian ideals, right? The Christian spiritual life consists in recognizing our radical dependence upon the Lord, not our independence. If we think we're autonomous and that we're self-sufficient, we're deluding ourselves because we can do nothing without God, right? And actually, contrary to what most people think, it is in recognition of this dependence that we become actually free, right? So in the story of the Israelites wandering in the desert in the Old Testament, God provided them manna to eat every day, right? He sent down bread from heaven and they gathered it up every day for 40 years as they wandered in the wilderness. But it's really interesting that God instructed them only to gather up each morning what they needed for that day. He said, don't hoard up a bunch of stuff that you'll need for tomorrow because I will continue to provide for you every day. What he wanted them to do was live and understand the truth of their utter dependence upon him, right? That they, that they needed him. And by trusting and not gathering up more than they needed, they were set free. They didn't have to worry. They knew that the father who gives good gifts to his children was going to provide for them, right? So Jacques Philippe, with regard to prayer, 
Father Jacques Philippe, he says this. He says, doing mental prayer necessarily means experiencing our poverty, being stripped of everything and feeling naked. Sounds pleasant. <laughs> In solitude and silence before God, we find ourselves unsupported, alone, with the reality of ourself and our poverty. Yet, it is precisely that trusting, joyful acceptance of weakness that is the source of all spiritual richness. And then he quotes the Beatitudes, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So, that first principle, humility, right? Huge deal in the spiritual life. And that principle is very related to what our second principle is going to be, namely that God's action is primary in prayer. When it comes to prayer, what's more important is what God is doing. What's less important is what we're doing. One of the most profound truths of our faith is that at the moment of our baptism, God, the creator of the universe, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, entered into our hearts and took up his dwelling there. And he lives there as in his own temple. Right? Like this is, this is insane. Right? This isn't just flowery language. This isn't some metaphor. This is a literal description of reality if you have been baptized and have become a son of God. Right? You're an adopted son of God. He lives within you. And because he lives within you, um, prayer becomes more what he is doing within you than what you're trying to do on your own. Right? So there's just a couple great quotes from scripture. Jesus says, Whoever loves me will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our dwelling with him. We will make our dwelling with him. God dwells within us. And St. Paul, in the letter to the Corinthians, he says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? God lives within us. This is nuts, but it's true. It's true. And so one of the most important consequences of this, like I mentioned, is that when we come to pray, it's more what God is doing within us than what we're doing ourselves, right? Um, Jacques Philippe says, oh, this is another great quote from St. Paul that I forgot to say. The Spirit comes to the aid of our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit itself intercedes with inexpressible groanings, right? So God, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Trinity is within us in that eternal dialogue that he's always been in, right? And it's welling up within us to the Father. It's, it's very mysterious. But Jacques Philippe says, what matters in mental prayer is not so much what we do as what God does in us. Now this, this is incredibly liberating because if you've ever tried to pray, I'm sure you've experienced difficulties in prayer before. A lot of times we come to pray and we're distracted, right? We, our mind is wandering. We don't have, we're, sometimes we're exhausted. We don't have anything beautiful to say. We don't have anything that we think is worthy of like offering to God. Um, a lot of times we're, there's dryness. We're not feeling anything. We're not feeling God's presence, God's existence. And we think that we're failing in some way when we come before him. But this is, we don't have to worry when we experience these things because it's God's action that's primary in prayer. And he is going to transform us from the inside out, right? If we just continually place ourselves in his presence and stay there. Um, I've, heard this, I've heard this compared to like sunbathing, right? Like laying on a beach and tanning. This isn't something I do much of, as you could probably tell. My sisters, though, like to do this type of thing. And what happens when you lay on a beach and you tan is that you don't feel anything happening, um, you don't experience any change that you can like perceive, but then after you spend hours laying on the beach, you come away and you've, you notice a change in yourself, right? So without our even noticing it a lot of the times, God's grace is working within us when we come and offer him our time in prayer. 
The next principle can kind of be gathered from this part of the scripture that we read today. Jesus says, my sheep follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. My sheep follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. And what I kind of drew from this is that prayer, mental prayer, is an act of faith, hope, and love, right? Prayer is an act of faith, hope, and love. Now, faith, hope, and love are typically called the theological virtues. It's a fancy technical theological name for them, um, but they're a big deal. They're kind of like the whole point of the Christian life is faith, hope, and love, exercising these virtues. They're called theological virtues for two reasons. Firstly, because they're given to us by God, right? No one, comes to, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the power of the Holy Spirit, right? So every, like our ability to have faith, our ability to have supernatural hope and divine charity within us is a gift from God. But they're also called theological virtues because by exercising these virtues, we actually are put in direct contact with God himself. So when we make acts of faith and hope and love, it's as if we're reaching out and like touching God. Um, that's how we kind of have contact with him while we're living in this world. And so I want to just talk about how each of these virtues kind of plays into our life of prayer. So first of all, prayer is an act of faith, right? Um, in the letter of the Hebrews, we read, Without faith, it is impossible to please God, for anyone who approaches God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him, right? So faith is kind of like the fundamental disposition for prayer, right? You've got to come before him, acknowledging his presence and his reality. Jacques Philippe, and again, this, this great author who I'm quoting, he has a helpful definition. He says, Faith is the capacity of believers to act not according to impressions, preconceived ideas, or notions borrowed from other people, but according to what they are told by the Word of God, who cannot lie. Right? The gift of faith is the ability to believe what has been revealed to us by God, especially in the person of Jesus Christ. Right? Um, now, when it comes to the life of prayer, I think faith plays in. There's two kind of things that we have to have faith in. The first thing we have to have faith in is we have to have faith in God's presence, right? Um, we have to have faith in God's presence. Now, this isn't always because we feel God's presence, although sometimes we will. This isn't always because we feel like we deserve to be in God's presence. We have faith in God's presence because he's promised us that he's there, right? We know that he's the creator of everything, that he's sustaining everything in existence. So he's present to all of his creation. If we're praying the scriptures, he's present there in a special way. If we're praying in front of the Blessed Sacrament, he's there in, in, in the most special way, right? But we know that he's there because he promised us he is. He says in the gospel, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your father who is there in secret, right? He's there. Um, and when we come before him in prayer, a good thing to do is to place ourselves in his presence. And even if we don't feel anything, we can make an act of faith and say, Father, I know that you are here, that you are with me, that you're present with me, right? Um, and then the second kind of thing that we need to have faith in when we pray is faith in the fruitfulness of prayer. We need to have faith that God will reward us for the prayer that we are you know, practicing. Right? Jesus says to us, Ask and you shall receive. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. And um, this is really important because sometimes, I'm sure you've experienced this, we don't immediately perceive results or rewards from our prayer. Sometimes we don't get what we ask for immediately, right? But when this happens, we have to approach it with an attitude of faith, knowing that if we persevere in prayer, eventually God will transform us. Eventually he will transform us. There's a great quote from the book of the letter of James. He says, Be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious fruits of the earth, 
being patient over it until it receives the early and the late rain. You also must be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Right, so that's, that's the theological virtue of faith. The next one is hope, right? Hope is similar to faith, but hope is more of like a loving trust and confidence that God will fulfill his promises. You can see hope played out in particular in the, uh, in the lives of some of the saints. So one of my favorite saints is St. Saint Mother Teresa. There's a great story about St. Mother Teresa. In 1982, she was in Lebanon. And in August of that year, Israel actually started bombing Beirut. And there was a siege and there were bombs and people were dying. Well, Mother Teresa got wind that across the border in Beirut, there was a hospital with a hundred, or an orphanage, excuse me, with a hundred mentally handicapped orphans who had been left and abandoned by all the workers. They were just there, trapped, didn't have anywhere to go as the country's getting bombed. Mother Teresa discovers this and she's with government officials and priests and she's saying, well, obviously we're going over there to get these guys, right? Um, and they were like, Mother Teresa, you know, I, I appreciate your, you know, your intention, but this is not possible. We would die. She's no, we, we, we need to be willing to die. You know, like this, this does, that doesn't matter. We need to go get those kids. And the, the official she was with was resolute. And he said, no, mother, unless there were a ceasefire, it's just impossible for us to even get over there. And she said, oh, but tomorrow is the eve of Our Lady's Feast Day. So tomorrow is August 14th, 14th, and the 15th is the Feast of the Assumption. And I've prayed to Our Lady, and she said that tomorrow there's going to be a ceasefire. And the, the, the man looks at her, and, you know, she's this tall and about around all these men. And he looks at her, and he says, okay, mother... If there's a ceasefire, you know, I will personally drive you into Beirut tomorrow to get these kids. <laughs> well, sure enough, mother goes and spends the whole night in prayer, comes back. There's a ceasefire the next day. And they, the man drives her in and um, they rescue all those kids and bring them back um, to safety. So um, the catechism says, oh, there, yeah, I should, have, I should have had that up while I was telling that story. She's, uh, that's, a, that's a divine smile. Um, the Catechism says this, Jesus prays to the Father and gives thanks before receiving his gifts. So too, he teaches us filial boldness, right? We should ask with confidence. Whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you receive it and you will. Such is the power of prayer and of faith that does not doubt. And another quote from the scriptures, all things are possible to him who believes. So that's the virtue of hope. And finally, the virtue of love. Love is the most important thing in the Christian life, right? St. Paul, in the letter to the Corinthians, he says this, If I have faith so as to move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If faith, hope, and love remain these three, but the greatest of these is love. Love is what, it all, is what it's all about. Um, St. Teresa of Avila, again, she says, In prayer, what counts is not to think much, but to love much, right? Not to think much, but to love much. And that's really... Um, liberating for me because I think a lot of us have this perception of prayer like when we go to prayer we have to do some sort of like mental gymnastics right we have to go and do like a workout with our mind and if we can't do it well then we're failing in prayer but that's not what prayer is prayer is an act of the will an act of the heart and we can always no matter what we're feeling no matter how tired we are we can always offer our heart and love to the father even if it's like God I'm exhausted I can't even say anything right now but I love you I love you Right, so that's incredibly liberating. One of my other favorite saints, it's a close competition with this saint and Mother Teresa, but it's St. Therese of Lisieux. Um, St. Therese, the little flower, she died when she was 24 years old. 
She's also a doctor of the church, so a spiritual genius. And for the last year and a half of her life, she was suffering terribly with tuberculosis. Like, her insides were literally, like, liquefying. She should have died way before she actually did, but she continued to just suffer. Um, there's a great story. You know, she's laying in bed in the infirmary, and her sister, her blood sister, who's also a sister in the same convent as her, comes in, and she asks Therese, um, you know, what, what are you thinking about, Therese? And Therese says, I'm not thinking about anything. I, I can't think. I don't have energy to think. So, so I pray. You know, she's this sweet little girl. So I pray. And her sister says, but Therese, what are you saying to Jesus? And she says, I don't say anything. I just love him. I don't say anything. I just love him, right? That's prayer, right? That's what prayer is. It's a, it's a simple act of, it can be as simple as an act of love of the heart that we offer to the Father. We know that to love is to will the good of another, and so it doesn't matter what we're feeling or thinking. We know that we can just offer our hearts to the Lord in love. So faith, hope, and charity, big deal in prayer, right? Um, So the next principle that I want to talk about comes from this line in the scripture that we read. This is the last thing that Jesus says. No one can take them out of my hand. No one can take my sheep out of my hand. And that leads me to conclude that one of the biggest principles that we can think about in the spiritual life is that perseverance in prayer is essential, right? Perseverance is prayer is essential. St. Teresa of Avila, again, going back to her, she says this, It is essential, I maintain, to begin the practice of prayer with a firm resolution to persevere in it. Now, why would she say this? She would say this because we are weak human beings, right? Our wills are not good at choosing the good and sticking with it. And so if we begin our daily practice of prayer without this firm resolution to persevere in it, we're going to falter, right, when things come up. Um, We can't just decide to pray when it's convenient or when it's beneficial to us or when we need something from God, right? We, that's not love. That's not love. Love by its nature is faithful and it's repetitive, right? Think of the heart. The heart just like keeps on beating day after day, hour after hour. And that's what love is. And that's what we need to be like in prayer. We can never grow tired and we need to be firmly resolved to persevere to the end. Um, the catechism says this, and this is some of the strongest language in the entire catechism of the Catholic Church. Um, The choice of time and duration of the prayer arises from a determined will, revealing the secrets of the heart. One does not undertake contemplative prayer only when one has the time. One makes time for the Lord, with the firm determination not to give up no matter what trials and dryness one may encounter. Right? So fidelity and perseverance in prayer is huge, right? Think of any human relationship, think of any marriage. What makes a marriage strong is the continued perseverance and fidelity, no matter what the trials, right? And it's the same in our relationship with the Lord. One of my favorite <clears throat> books is A Tale of Two Cities. Raise your hand if you read A Tale of Two Cities. Oh, yeah. Okay, everyone else, that's your homework. Um, you got to read A Tale of Two Cities. I actually read it during the pandemic for the first time, like right at the beginning, shut down. And there's this beautiful section of The Tale of Two Cities where Lucy Manette is one of the main characters and her husband, Charles Darney. Charles Darney is imprisoned, right? He's sentenced to prison. And Lucy Manette, for two years, the two years that her husband's in prison, every day goes to stand on the street corner outside the prison, like all day. Not because she can see into the prison and see Charles Darney, but there's a window at the top, and Lucy caught word that every once in a while her husband can sneak away and look out the window, and she wanted to be there to be seen by her husband if he had that opportunity, right? 
and there's a woodworker on the street you know, harassing her. It's almost the French Revolution, so chaos in the streets. But she's there every day, day after day after day. And when I read that, I was, you know, wiped the tears away from my eyes. And I was like, that's it, though. That's prayer. Like, that's what prayer is, that fidelity. Sometimes at no reward to ourselves, but just out of love for the other, right? So my favorite quote, one of my favorite quotes from Mother Teresa, God doesn't ask us to be successful. He asks us to be faithful. And we can all be faithful, right? We can all be, we can all persevere in this prayer. Um, so the next principle of the spiritual life that we can talk about comes from another, we can just kind of think about, take a step back and think about the relationship between a sheep and a shepherd, right? Because we are the sheep and the flock of this good shepherd, our Lord. And we know that a sheep and a shepherd spend a ton of time together, right? I mean, they spend all day together out in the field. Um, they just spend time out in the silence. They get to know each other that way. And so one of the next principles, our fifth principle of the day, is that to pray is to spend time with God, right? To pray is to spend time with God. Now, one of the most common objections to practicing daily prayer is that we don't have enough time for it, right? A lot of us are busy. A lot of us have legitimate responsibilities that we're taking care of. Um, We live hectic, fast-paced lives, and we think, we don't have time to pray. Where can I possibly find time to pray? Um, but in my experience, whenever we find ourselves asking this question, you know, where can I find time to pray? And seminarians find themselves asking this question too. Um, it's not really time that's the problem. The problem is knowing what actually matters in our life, right? Um, Jacques Philippe, he has, this is one of my favorite quotes from this Father Jacques Philippe who I've been quoting. He says, no one has yet starved to death because they didn't have time to eat. (laughs) We always find, or rather take time, to do what really matters to us, right? And this is so true. If you want to know what's important to a person, look at the way they spend their time, right? We've been instructed by the Lord to love him with our whole heart, our whole soul, all our strength, all our mind. And so if we can't give him some time each day, something is seriously out of order in our lives, right? Um, so we need to think about that. Now the question obviously becomes the big question that everyone wants to know, how much time, right? How much time do I need to give to the Lord each day? The answer is not going to be the same for everyone, right? Like prudence needs to dictate this decision. The mother of eight who has, you know, three newborn babies and hasn't slept in six years because she hasn't had a moment of silence is going to have a little bit of less time to pray than, you know, the single person in their twenties who's living alone, Right. Um, and from at different seasons in your life, you might this, the, the amount of time that you're able to dedicate to prayer each day might change based on circumstances. But I think, this is my opinion, um, and I've got good sources to back this, <laughs> that as a general rule for a typical Christian who wants to grow in holiness, who wants to be a saint, who wants to be a light in the darkness, I think 20 minutes, 20 minutes a day of uh, mental prayer, of loving conversation with the Lord, is a really good place to start. If you could do 30 minutes, I think that'd be better. I think in my own experience, 30 minutes, there's something kind of magical about that number of giving the Lord a half hour of your time. But if you could only get 15, or if you could only get 10, do it, right? I don't know what your circumstances are. um, But as a general guideline, I think 20 minutes. When I was in college, before coming into the seminary, I mentioned I played basketball. So I was a student athlete, really busy, right? There were some days where legitimately I was busy from like 6 a.m. like workouts to like 11 p.m. when I passed out out of exhaustion after doing all my schoolwork. And now to be fair, 
I was probably wasting some time on social media <laughs> during, during those days. But I didn't have a long you know, chunk of time to give to the Lord in prayer. And so this is a true story. What I did was in between a couple of my classes that were in the same classroom, I had 10 minutes. And so in order to find a quiet place to pray in the busy finance building that I was in, um, I, would, I would go into the bathroom and go into the stall and sit down on the toilet, literally. And take out my phone and I would read the daily readings and I would just sit in silence with the Lord for, you know, eight, ten minutes. Um, now this obviously became really awkward when someone came into the stall next to me and two very different things were happening at the same time. <laughs> but, but literally, some days, I, that's, that's the time I could give. And what's important is being dedicated to finding that time, right? What's important is that you choose a specific amount of time and you stick to it each day. If you have to set a timer on your watch or on your phone so that you can resolutely stick to that time, I highly recommend it because, like I said, faithfulness is what is the most important. Now, for some people, certainly in the eyes of the world, taking time away to sit in silence with the Lord looks like a huge waste of time, right? It looks like you're not being productive. It looks like you're just kind of retreating and escaping and you're, being, you're wasting time. I have two things to say to that. The first thing I have to say to that is that isn't that what people who are in love do? Is they waste time together. Right? Like, have you ever seen, like, a new boyfriend and a girlfriend who are just, like, madly in love? They just want to be together. They can just be together doing absolutely nothing. It doesn't matter what they're doing. They just want to be in the presence of the other. Um, has anyone seen the movie A Hidden Life? A Hidden Life. Yeah, so it's a movie about Blessed Franz Jägerstatter, who is a beatified saint um, now in the Catholic Church. But he lived during World War II, and he refused to sign the oath of fidelity to Hitler, right? Um, and eventually got arrested and killed for this. And, uh, but this movie about his life is called A Hidden Life, and it's this breathtakingly beautiful movie of this man and his family living in this small, tiny village in the middle of the mountains. And it's like a two-and-a-half-hour movie, maybe even three hours. And there's so many beautiful scenes of the scenery, but there's a lot of scenes that are just like this, right? This is Franz and his wife just laying out in the fields, doing absolutely nothing together, right? Um, a scene like this would last in the movie for like two minutes, or that's what it felt like. I mean, it would, it would really just be like them together. And I saw that too, and I was like, that's it. I was like, that's prayer. That's prayer right there. Because people who are in love, this is the best way to spend your time, right? So if we love our Lord, and the more we come to love our Lord, it's okay to waste time with Him. That's what we want to do. Okay, but the second thing I'd say to that objection is that Time spent with God is really never time wasted, right? Time spent with God is always time transformed, right? It might seem like a sacrifice to take time away from what we're doing, but listen to what our Lord says. There is no one, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mothers or father or children or land for my sake and that of the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, right? He also says to his apostles, he says, seek first the kingdom of heaven and all these things will be given you besides, right? When we come to our Lord in prayer, when we're generous with our time, He transforms us. Not only does He transform that time, but I promise you, this is the most paradoxical thing that you'll ever hear in your life, but if you are daily at prayer, you will experience it. The more time you give to God, the more time somehow you get back. Like, you're able to do more with the time you have. You're able to be more present to the people who are in your life because you're because you're around the one who's present all the time and learning how to love from him and being empowered by his love. 
being generous with our time with the Lord will never come back to bite us. It will always be for our benefit. So time spent with God is not wasted. It is transformed, right? Okay, for our next principle, I want to look at this line. Very simple line from the letter to the, from the Gospel of John. My sheep hear my voice. My sheep hear my voice, right? So this is a big part of the Christian life. We need to, we need to hear the voice of our shepherd and we need to know it well, right? The sheep would recognize the voice of his shepherd and follow it. And um, as Christians, the place that we primarily hear the voice of God is in Scripture, right? In the Word of God that's been given to us. So our next principle that I want to talk about is Lexio Divina. God gives himself to us in his word, right? This is a huge, huge deal. So we can start now to talk a little bit about actually how to spend some of the time that you give to God in prayer, right? Like what actually we might want to do. Um, We hear in the book of the Hebrews, indeed, the word of God is living and effective, sharper than any two-edged sword, penetrating even in between soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and able to discern reflections and thoughts of the heart. St. Jerome, who lived in the fourth century, he's one of the best famous scripture scholars in the whole history of the church. He said this, he says, ignorance of scripture is ignorance of Christ, right? So if we want to know Jesus Christ, if we want to know his voice and be able to hear it, we have to familiarize ourselves with his word. And a great way to do that is through Lexio Divina. So Lexio Divina just means like divine reading, um, and it's kind of it's a tradition that kind of arose in the Benedictine monasteries in the in the Middle Ages, and it's a very for me this is my go-to. This is how I spend my time of mental prayer um, with the Word of God, especially the Gospels. And so there's kind of five steps to it. The first is lexio or reading. So you read the passage slowly, prayerfully. I like to choose passages from the Gospels, and you might read it once or twice or three times. You might read it upside down. You might read it sideways just to really soak it in, right? And really see what jumps out at you. And then you meditate on this, this passage, right? Um, meditation, meditatio, um, this involves using your imagination, right? This involves entering into the scene that you're reading, right? And using your imagination to think about, okay, what are these characters thinking? What are they feeling? What are they hearing? What are they smelling? like really immersing yourself into the scene that you're reading, knowing that God is alive within his word and that that's actually a real way to encounter him, right? So for an example, like you could place yourself next to the manger in the nativity, right? And you could think about what the sheep smell like and you could watch the shepherd, the kings come up and lay down their gold and frankincense and myrrh before the Blessed Mother. And then you could watch Our Lady, you know, gently lay Our Lord in the manger and gaze into His eyes, right? And you could experience the scene. You could be right there, right? So that's kind of like the meditation step. Then oratio or prayer, that is, you pray about it. You take the contents and the reflections that you've just spent time, you know, thinking about in um, the meditations phase and you just talk to the Lord about it. Lord, thank you for being such an incredibly humble and loving God who came to us in the form of an infant, right? Lord, I love you. Lord, I'm sorry that I'm falling asleep right now. Lord, thank you for the gift of life. Like all, you just talk to the Lord. Have a loving conversation with him. And then contemplatio or contemplation. This is where some of the language can be confusing. But um, that really just means this is more of a passive period of prayer. So it's when after we've kind of done all this more active stuff, we've read, we've used our imagination, we've had a conversation with the Lord, then we just kind of sit in God's presence 
and allow him to love us, right? We kind of just receive his love in silence and in an attitude of receptivity, right? Um, so that's the fourth step. And then the fifth step is axio. So sometimes this involves actually making a, revolution, a resolution to like change our life in a particular way. But the idea is that this process should spill over into our lives, right? Like the love of the Lord that we enkindle and that we experience in prayer should inform the way that we go about the rest of our day, right? So that, this is a really powerful thing. Um, and like I said, this is, this is how I pray. This is what I found the most effective in my own prayer life. Pope Benedict XVI, Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, who is one of the most brilliant men to have ever lived, I'm convinced of it. He said this, and this is a big deal. He says, in, 20, in 2005, he said, in this context, he's a you know, humble little man, in this context, I would like in a particular way to recall and recommend the ancient tradition of Lexio Divina. The diligent reading of sacred scripture accompanied by prayer brings about that intimate dialogue in which the person reading hears God who is speaking and in praying responds to him with trusting openness of heart. And then this is nuts what he says next. If it is effectively promoted, so if the whole church started doing Lexio Divina every day, this practice will bring to the church, I am convinced of it, he says, a new spiritual springtime, right? The church is in need of a new spiritual springtime. I don't know if you've noticed, but uh, the fact that you guys are here is a sign that that is on the rise, like that, that, that's possible. And if we nourish ourselves with the word of God in Lexio Divina every day, um, I think that will help bring it about. This is a great image of Mary at the Annunciation, right? When the angel Gabriel comes to her. And what you'll notice about Mary in this image and a lot of traditional images of Mary at the Annunciation is what does she have on her lap? But the scriptures, right? So Mary, always in the Gospels we hear, she pondered these things in her heart, right? She was constantly meditating on the life of her son. And we know that before the angel came to her, she would have known the scriptures well. She would have been constantly meditating on the word of the Lord day and night. And when the angel came, this is why it wasn't anything you know, difficult for her to say yes and to receive the word, like the word of God, Jesus Christ, because she had been receiving the word for her entire life, right? She was constantly meditating on it. So she's our model. She's our perfect example. She's our mother. So we should, like her, always meditate on the word of God. For our final principle, uh, I want to read this part of the scripture that we read today. I am the good shepherd, and I know mine, and mine know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I will lay down my life for my sheep. I will lay down my life for my sheep. We have a God who has loved us so much that he has laid down his life for us. We have a shepherd who has laid down his life for us. But our shepherd did this in a way that only he, in his unspeakable love, could possibly do. And he did it by becoming one of us. He did it by becoming a sheep. He did it by becoming a lamb, right? The lamb of God who was slain to take away the sins of the world, right? The innocent, spotless victim who was sacrificed for our sins. And this image of the shepherd becoming the sheep, the shepherd becoming one of us, is very related to one of the most central tenets of our Catholic faith, which is that God became a man, right? The incarnation. Jesus Christ is true God and true man. And so the last <clears throat> principle of the day is that God gives himself to us through the humanity of Jesus Christ. Through the humanity of Jesus Christ. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean that as human beings, 
we have something that might not seem significant, significant, but is actually really, really important, is that we have bodies, right? We are creatures with bodies and souls. We're not just angels or pure spirits who don't have any bodies. We have bodies, and this is good, and this is important. But what that means is that we as human beings can only interact with reality. We can only encounter things in and through our bodies, right? We have five senses. Touch, taste, smell, hearing. What am I missing? Sight. Big one. Right? And only through these five senses can we come to interact with reality. If we can't touch something or sense something, we, we can't know it. If we don't hear, if we don't see, if we don't smell, if we don't... You, you get the idea. Um, now, historically, though, this has been... This has posed a bit of a problem for humanity's relationship with God. Because God is completely immaterial. He's a pure spirit. He doesn't have a body. God in himself is completely inaccessible to our senses. So how in the world can we interact with God? How in the world can we encounter this God if the only way that we can encounter anything is in and through our senses, in and through our bodies? Well, luckily God created us this way and he knew what he was doing. And eventually in his unspeakable love, what do we say? He condescended and he came down and he made himself accessible to us so that now we can touch him, so that now we can see him, so that now we can taste him. Right? He's not a mysterious and hidden God anymore. Now he has a human face. Jesus Christ is truly God and truly man. And it is through our interactions with his humanity that we are brought into contact with God the Father. In John 1.18, the evangelist says this. He says, No one has ever seen God. The only Son, God, who is close to the Father's heart, has made him known. St. Paul says in the letter to the Colossians, he says, In him, Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Jesus Christ is God. And we have access to him through his humanity. At the Last Supper, what did Jesus say to his disciples? He says, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Right? Whoever has seen me and seen the Father. And so Jacques Philippe, going back to my man Jacques Philippe, he says, The humanity of Jesus is for us an immense space for communion with God. Now that sounds a little bit abstract. So what does it mean, like practically speaking? Well, he continues to elaborate and he says it really well, I think. He says, We can contemplate Jesus' deeds and gestures. We can meditate on his actions and his words, on the events of his life on earth, and keep them in memory. We can look at his face in an icon. We can adore him in his body in the Eucharist. We can pronounce his name lovingly and keep it in our heart and so on. Right? So all of these are ways that we are brought into contact with the humanity of Jesus Christ and through that humanity brought into union with the Father, right? brought into union with God. So this is why Lexio Divina is so awesome and so important, especially with the Gospels, right? because we encounter the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in the Gospels. And this is also why praying the rosary, I couldn't get through this whole talk without mentioning the rosary, is so awesome. Because what do we do in the rosary? But we meditate on the mysteries of the life of Jesus Christ, right? We keep his humanity and the mysteries of his life and death before our eyes, right? So this is hugely important. Jesus says to us, as we heard already this morning, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And we know that the most important way that we encounter Jesus Christ's humanity is in the Eucharist, right, at Mass. So I put together this diagram, which is very fancy. You can applaud me for my, for my technical skills. You have no idea how long this took me. Um, 
But so we have our mental prayer, our practice of mental prayer, and that nourishes and prepares us for the most powerful form of prayer, the most powerful encounter with Jesus Christ, which is the celebration of the Mass and our reception of Him in the Eucharist. And then that celebration in turn comes back and impact, like nourishes our prayer so that we're more deeply united to Him, right? That's why we call the Eucharist the source and summit of our salvation. It's the source of our, of our Christian life and the summit towards which we're always tending. Um, so we have like five minutes left. So we can do one of two things. I can talk about some very practical things for prayer or we can do q and I'll leave it up to you guys. And the first person to say something I'm going to listen to because we only have five minutes. You talk. Okay. Okay, cool. <laughs> All right, so a few practical suggestions for prayer. The first one is choosing a time and place, right? So choosing a time and place. Typically, place matters, right? So because we are human beings with bodies, the actual space that we reside in is going to influence the way that we're able to enter into prayer, right? So obviously the best place ever to pray is in front of Jesus Christ in the Eucharist because he's truly present there. And it's easiest to place ourselves in his presence when he's actually right there, right? So... But you can also kind of like set up, if you, if you can't get to a chapel, you could in your house. If you have, designate a spot in your house or a corner in your room, light candles, have an icon there or a crucifix, and designate an area that you can go and place yourself and enter into so that you're more easily able to put yourself in union with God, right? And when it comes to choosing a time, um, traditionally the church has always advocated for praying at the, in the morning and the evening, right? At the beginning and the, and the close of our day. Um, choosing a time for mental prayer. I personally have found most success in the morning. Um, not everyone's a morning person, but you, can, you, you have more of a guarantee in the morning that something else is not going to come up and you know, threaten your time and make you divert your attention. So choosing a time and a place of prayer is very important. Secondly, we have posture, right? So like I said, we have bodies. This matters actually how we're, how we're sitting or standing or kneeling. Posture, it's re- you don't have to overthink it. You should be comfortable enough that you're not in pain and only thinking about how much your knees hurt, if that's the case. But you should not be so comfortable that you're just going to fall asleep, right? So that's kind of the rule that you want to keep in mind. So you can be sitting. You can be kneeling. You can be, you can be walking. You can do mental prayer while you're walking around. Um, the important thing is to find a posture that allows you to be attentive and receptive and does not going to, you know, don't bring a pillow to the chapel, um, is what my spiritual director always used to say. It's okay if you fall asleep, just don't bring a pillow. Um, the third one is write down a spiritual plan of life. So this is incredibly important. If we want to be persevere in the practice of prayer and stay dedicated to it, um, it's incredibly useful to actually write down, okay, I'm going to pray at this time every day. I'm going to set this amount of time aside. I'm going to do it you know, right after my lunch break, if that's when you can do it. Or I'm going to do it... Right in the morning when I wake up, it's going to be the first thing I do. Um, and ha- writing it out and being intentional about when you're actually going to find time to pray, or pray is really important. Um, and I'm constantly making new spiritual plans of life. Like, I'm about, we're about to go on a retreat next week, and I know that at the end of this, I'm going to, I'm going to have like rethought some things. I'm going to want to implement new things, and I'm going to write it down because that's, it helps you stay accountable. And actually writing it down is a powerful thing. So that's another tip. Fourth thing, spiritual reading. Spiritual reading. Like I said, we as human beings don't know things that we don't encounter through our senses. So if we're not reading about the truths of the faith and keeping heavenly realities before our mind's eye at all times, we'll forget what's truly real. 
And so one of the great ways of nourishing our life of mental prayer is by reading, reading spiritual authors. I'll have a list of books at the end that you can take a picture of or write down or something. Um, reading spiritual authors, reading scripture, keeping these realities before our eyes so that we don't lose touch with them, right? So spiritual reading is a huge aid. Um, the next one, the practice of the presence of God. The practice of the presence of God. So we've said God is present everywhere. God is present throughout your entire day. A lot of the spiritual life is just becoming more and more aware of this presence to the point where like you look at the saints and they were habitually in the presence of God. Like they were, all, they were almost always praying, right? They needed prayer as much as they needed oxygen for breathing, right? And we want to be able to see God in our life and we want to be able to live in intimate and unceasing union with him, right? Um, and so the practice of the presence of God is just at different points throughout the day, as, as often as you can, it doesn't have to become a rigid or like technical or mechanical thing, but as often as you can, just like say like, Jesus, I love you. Like, Lord, I love you. Please help me with this. Just turn your heart and your mind to him as often as you can with these small prayers. And what that will do is it will kind of help you stay in his presence throughout the day so that when you come to your time of mental prayer or when you come to mass, you're, able, you're already there. You're able to enter into prayer more fully. Um, so the practice of the presence of God the next one, get a good night's sleep. Uh, I took a class on Christian prayer my senior year of college at the seminary, and we spent the whole first two classes of that course talking about sleep. Because, because God's action is primary in prayer, a lot of our work is just like disposing ourselves to receive his love. And if we go into the chapel exhausted because we were up watching Prison Break the night before, which was my story senior year uh, of high school, we're not going to be well disposed to receive God's graces. And sleep is also really similar to prayer on a natural level. What do we do when we sleep? On a biological level, we go and we lay down and we do nothing and we wake up and we're restored somehow. That's amazing. Prayer is very similar. We go and we seemingly do nothing. But God transforms us in that process. Um, so getting a good night's sleep is actually a, a pretty big part of the spiritual life. Seven, pray the rosary, please. That's... Yeah, <laughs> um, uh, I've already mentioned the importance of the rosary. If that is what you do for your time of mental prayer every day is pray the rosary and meditate on Jesus's mysteries, that is incredible, right? If that's what you choose to do, if that helps you to pray. Eight, keep a journal. You can, each night you can write about what God is doing in your soul. Write down and record it. So then what you can do is when you get to times of trial or dryness, you can go and look back and remember, oh yeah, God, you've been walking with me my entire life and I've been recording it. Um, so all these practices, again, very fancy technology, all these practices kind of nourish our mental prayer, right? And then um, that in turn flows back into our celebration of the Eucharist. Um, so I believe, oh, I gotta, put, <laughs> I gotta put a plug in. I have a podcast, me and a couple of my buddies at seminary, which is why Jake is laughing. Um, shameless plug, if, um, anything I said today was helpful, or even if you'd prefer to hear other seminarians instead of me, um, Logos Podcast, we talk about the faith, we talk about culture, philosophy, theology, and, uh, uh, and what? Gorillas. Gor gorillas. Um, so please, if you're, if you're interested, check that, check that out. And then here's the list of um, books and suggested readings that you can take a picture of. There's tons of there's, there's tons of spiritual books out there, but here's some of the ones that I drew on for this, this talk and, um, and some
some that you can take a look at if you'd like. So I think we're, we're probably at time. If you guys had any questions, I'd be happy to field them. But if not, I think we're probably moving on to the next activity. So whatever, whatever you guys would, would want. Absolutely. Thank you guys so much. Thank you guys so much for coming.